0: Hey there! Welcome to Night School. How do you like that little trick? Last couple episodes, of have uh, used a little trick there. It's called playing music, setting a mood. It's called setting a mood. But um, yeah, I don't really have a topic. But I wouldn't call this a free for all necessarily. I'm feeling very slow. The world seems to have slowed. Slown. I almost said it's slowed down. Is that? A way to say it. I feel like people say that everything is slowing, slowing, Sloane. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining a word that's S L O W N, But Yeah, everything feels like it's slowed down a little bit. Not necessarily in a good way, but not in a way to complain about either. I think uh, things slowing down is something to accept. <laughs> Which sounds like some platitude I need mean, I really need to start marketing myself to forty something year old women things slowing down it's something to accept There's all those platitudes there's all these info I don't even know what to call them. I don't even know what to call anything anymore. What do you call things? What do you call things what do you call what do you call things? But uh, yeah, you'll see these little infographics around these days, where it's like this is how you accept uh, criticism. I'll tell you how to. I'll, I'll tell you exactly how to accept criticism. You scream in someone's face. You just scream. Make sure you react very quickly when someone criticizes you. When someone says something that isn't even necessarily a direct or even indirect criticism. If you just think there's a slight chance that something somebody said to you in your presence doesn't even need to be directed at you, doesn't even need to be said to you. If you think that something could possibly in any way be interpreted as a criticism of you, scream in their face... And practice your scream too. You know it should be natural, but it should also have a you know a nice range to it. You know, just make sure you you do that. Just do that. I saw a video years ago. I went on a, a kick years ago. I was l- watching videos of kids fighting. And one of them was these two kids, uh, it was an urban environment, and these two kids were fighting in a classroom, and one of them you could tell was kind of a nerd, and the other one wasn't. One was a nerd, and the other one wasn't. But uh, at one point, the teacher, and it wasn't violent or anything, it was just a, you know, I wasn't watching violent kid fights kids kind of bickering and shoving and pushing each other, which almost seems worse. The fact that I was watching videos like that, like not kids boxing, punching each other in the face, just kids getting into, you know, kind of, you know, smaller conflicts. <laughs> you know, what, what are you doing? Uh, I'm watching videos of kids getting into smaller conflicts. But anyway, at one point, you could see the kids getting into a conflict in the classroom and then the video cut. Like, you missed, like, it immediately cut to, like, a few minutes later, and the teacher was just, like, restraining the nerd, and the nerd was just screaming. Like, just unintelligible, high-pitched screaming. And the other kid was like, what's wrong with you? Yo, what's wrong with you? It was that kind of response. And there was nothing else to say, but it was, I loved it. (laughs) Uh, I think it disappeared. I think it 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 went missing. That video went missing because I would love to, I'd love to sample it. Even if you can't get the visual, just this kid screaming. But I mean, he was doing what I'm teaching you to do, which is to scream in response to any kind of criticism. You know, when someone bullies you, when you face all this adversity, all the, you know, you go through your life, and there's just so much adversity. So many bullies. You know what? I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you something that uh, you know. This might be a little bit controversial, but I don't like bullies. I don't like bullies. I don't like bullies. You know, you hear people say that. You know what? Oh, you know what? I really don't like pedophiles. Those things, when people make these bold declarations, and I'm sure. I mean, I do it constantly. This is a self-criticism as much as it is anything else. But it's one of those things you'll hear people... You'll hear this bravado in someone's voice and they'll go like, You know what I really hate? You know what I I, I really want to get my hands on that pedophile. I really want to get my hands on that audiophile. Oh, you know what kind of... You know, the kind of person I just don't like. Don't tell anybody that I think this. But I really don't like audiophiles. I really don't like pedophiles. I really don't like bullies. I don't know that I've ever heard someone say, I love bullies. Some of my favorite people on this planet are bullies. I love just seeing somebody get bullied. Yeah, people do enjoy that. But they won't admit it. But it's one of those things that people say, almost like they're confessing something that is unpopular. They'll say, I don't like bullies. As if it's some sort of bold declaration. As if tons of people are out there going, I love bullies. I love bullies. (laughs) Um, Same thing with pedophiles. All these things. and I mean, I do it all the time. I, I make all kinds of water is wet sort of statements. I say things that are just a given, but I recognize it in myself. You yeah, know, we got you gotta do that. So that you can claim to be humble. You gotta criticize yourself too. It's that's the art of criticism. That's the art of bullying, is that you learn how to bully yourself and that's your justification for bullying others. Oh, so I do it too. So I'm gonna I'm gonna point it out in you. Oh, I do it too, so I'm just going to, that allows me to point it out in you. It allows me to bully you. I bully myself, so I bully you too. And then you can scream in my face. The reason I bully people is because I, you know, my kink, as they say, is people screaming in my face. It's very kinky to just, you know, nothing sexual about it. Of course not. This is me talking here Of course there's there's no sexual Or or anything else component to it There's nothing weird about it I just like I bully people to the point That they reflexively scream in my face And it's a What do you call it? Like a psychological kink A psycho kink He's got one of those psycho kinks Um, But uh you know just make sure you react people you got to react that's the interesting thing about living in the information age as you would think you think that it would be a, an, a time where you have you you'd think that it, we would live in an age where you you have the time to look at something and you know consider it and maybe try to find some more information before having some sort of response or reaction or feeling the need to have a definitive opinion. But it's the opposite. As the information comes at you, there is this compulsion to fully respond to it, especially when you have outlets to do that. And I don't just mean the obvious ones. I don't mean the, you know, uh, the social media you know, this, the social media. I don't just mean that. Even just in your conversations with other people, you know, like I say, computers were made in man's image. The way that you communicate through these different devices is based ar- around the way that you communicate, or communicate organically as well. You know, things didn't just change because the the medium changed, because the format changed. Because you're now typing something into a device rather than writing a letter, or writing something rather than saying it aloud. Sure, the different medium changes, you know, the immediacy. It changes maybe how you say something, or even what you say, but, you know, the thoughts still come from the same place. Communication is still the same thing that comes from inside of you that you throw out there. And so I don't like the idea that these all of these things aren't just a reflection of who we innately are. And I think we innately try to respond to everything that comes our way. And increasing the frequency of it doesn't change that even though it should, even though having more information coming at you should actually slow down your need to react to it. Instead, you know, we're swinging the bat. It's like the the baseball launching machine, the auto launcher that launches baseballs at you. It's like it got sped up, it went haywire, and it's just throwing baseballs at you left and right, and you're trying to swing at all of them. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think we tend to focus too much on... This is doing this to us. Our phones are doing this to us. Social media is doing this to us. Texting... Letters, writing letters is doing this. Writing letters fucked everything up. Excuse my language. Writing letters, really, everything was fine until people started writing letters. I mean, what do you need to send a letter across the world for? What do you need to send a letter across the world for? The people you need to contact are right here, right now. Why don't you live in the moment? You're going to send this letter, and by the time it gets somewhere... If it even gets there If the letter you send in Even gets to the person you're writing it to It's gonna be like what 300 years old Everything you said It's like a thousand years ago The things that you were talking about then Things that were going on in your life Are like yesterday's news By the time that letter gets around the world What do we need books for? We can just tell these stories out loud. These books are destroying our verbal, our verbal culture. Storytelling is, is it's really gone down the tubes. All, you know, storytelling has really gone down the tubas since they invented books. There's always a reason to criticize innovation and technology, and and for good reason. You know, like I said, I don't know if I said it, but. <laughs> You know, I welcome any criticism, and I criticize, and it's just an inevitable part of being human, because the world around us is imperfect, therefore we have a need to criticize it, and because we ourselves are imperfect, that's why we criticize. Because a perfect world would be, it would be beyond criticism, and a perfect person wouldn't criticize even if the world was imperfect. So it's an imperfect world, imperfect person. That's why we criticize. That's why there are things to criticize. It's all valid. So, you you know, accept criticism. And remember that you're imperfect, and uh, the perfect response for an imperfect person who feels they are being criticized is to scream in someone's face who might, in some small way, be criticizing you. You know, when you see losers, when you see people who you, th- you see them out and about, and you just think that person's a loser, not even a judgment. I mean, because there's a difference in seeing people. Sometimes you see someone, and it's not even a judgment of them when you say, oh, my God, look at that loser. It's not even a judgment of them. Sometimes you see a person, and there's not even any kind of... You don't even do any kind of equation in your mind. There's no analysis. You just immediately identify somebody as a loser. Or something good, you know, too. It could be a good thing as well. But let's just go with losers. Because I like the word loser. I like the word loser. And uh, and losers, you know, we need them. Uh, you know, there was a, a song. I'm trying to f- remember the artist. It might have been the Del Satin's but there was a song I played on an old every night to school night called Gotta Have Losers Too. And I love that song because it's true. You know, we need losers in this world. We need losers. And not just in that way where it's like, if if we didn't have losers, we wouldn't have winners. You know, it's not even about providing that counterbalance or, you know, the fact that for the game to exist there have to be both winners and losers and the losers define the winners as much as the winners define winning by winning winning by winning you know uh, you know that's true too but it's also just like on a on a simple like you know losers <laughs> losers we need them for their own sake as well as the fact that they provide the counterpoint to winning to winners and winning uh, we need losers for their own sake as well, which is why I go out into society, and when I see somebody and I identify them as a loser, it's not necessarily a judgment because I see them as essential. Essential losers. You know, we've, we've gotten into this term, I haven't heard it as much lately, but that was the big buzzword during the the height of Coroni violand when we were all quarantined on Coroni violand you know, the big thing was essential workers, but you didn't hear a lot about essential losers. Because there are some losers that we don't need. There are definitely losers that we don't need, and they cause us a lot of trouble, a lot of grief. But there are essential losers too, and those are the people I'm talking about. I don't know what got me talking about losers, but I'm glad that I started talking about them. Otherwise, I don't think I ever would have come up with the phrase essential losers. And the same is true for winners as well. There are winners who are non-essential. There are non-essential winners, and people are bothered by non-essential winners. It's like, why does that person need to win? We don't need that winner. Whereas there are other winners where they're basically heroes. Essential winners are heroes. So are essential losers. I think essential losers are heroes too. Which is why we tend to celebrate them in the arts. You know, that's a funny thing you find in the arts. You find in in rock music. In rock and roll music, you know, you you tend to have this celebration of losers. Oh, this guy was a loser. But he, he could do some things on the guitar that we like. This guy made sounds that we really like. We love this loser. Because he made sounds that we like. Now look what this guy was able to do. He made beautiful paintings. He was a loser. And then it, it makes lo- being a loser cool. And then other people want to be losers. But they become non-essential losers. Therefore, we they just bother people. It's why I'm so critical of art and music subcultures. Because... While there are essential losers who create good things and either we can accept that they're a loser or we can even see where them being a loser fueled the, the great things they did, those people in turn inspire all of these people who, who become non-essential losers, like people who worship Kirk, uh, Kirk Corbrain, you know, like people who worship him. You know, and I'm not even, uh, you know, a fan really. You know, I'm not not trying to be controversial here by saying I'm not a a, a Nevada fan. His band Nevada. I didn't come, a, a listener of this show came up with that joke. Uh, I wish I could give proper credit. I think it was a I think it was a guy named John. Not 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 my favorite John. <laughs> Who's, who's a big listener of this show, but there was another John who is close to my favorite, but I want to say it was him. I don't know. I think it was one of the Johns came up with the joke, Nevada. Kirk Corbrain and his band Nevada. <laughs> Just the visual that Nevada brings to mind, like imagining this desert scape, this desert landscape. A band called Nevada, who's not even from Nevada. but anyway, uh, you know, you think about that, where that guy you know, the world has decided that that guy was an essential loser, but he inspired a lot of non-essential losers, and he might have inspired some other essential losers, too, but it's just it's interesting to think about that. Because non-essential losers, man, they can just give you a lot of trouble. But it's important not to react to them. It's important not to hate them. You know, if they pushed you too far, have that scream ready. I mean, it should be like a... uh, It should be spring-loaded. That scream that you have prepared when someone... Because it's not just when someone criticizes you or bullies you. It's something you have prepared for pretty much any situation. It's spring-loaded. Keep that tension tight. Your soul should just feel taut, t a u t. Should just feel tense all the time. Have it scream, spring-loaded, ready to go. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, this this episode has already been more productive than I imagined when I hit record. I'm very glad I decided to get into this topic of essential losers versus non-essential losers, and I imagine I will have more to say about it in the future. Probably not a lot more about essential winners versus non-essential winners. And in my opinion, non-essential winners might as well be losers. In my opinion, non-essential winners and non-essential losers are basically the same thing. They make you feel the same way when you're around them. And I might be one of them. I might be aware of them because I'm talking about my own here. I might very well be talking about my own species, my own subcategory, my own subculture. That might be my subculture. You know, my subculture is non-essential winner-slash-loser. There's really no difference. And my goal in life is to teach 40 something year old women platitudes that are that should be just super obvious like about screaming you know about art and music i want to you know, that's what i want to do i want to teach 40 something year old women about art and music become an art and music teacher Just talk. We just like to talk. We just like to talk about it. I'm not talking about teaching people how to make art or make music or really anything other than just casual conversation. But yeah, the the need to react to information. I know that somehow that spawned the essential loser conversation discussion I don't know that this counts as a conversation, considering it's one person, but to me it is. To me, this is a conversation. As a non-essential winner, non-essential loser, this feels like a conversation to me. But yeah, you you would expect as we've entered the information era, which is kind of a, a narcissistic way of seeing it, You know, because information age isn't a new term. It was a term that was being used before the internet was around. It's just, it's related to the proliferation of information. And, uh, you know, as soon as, basically as soon as people thought there was more information available, which has been every point in history. Every point in history has been the information age. You know, the, the first town crier... You know, the first time a town crier came to your town and told you the news from another town was the information age. When have we not been in the information age? When was the... What I want to know is, where was this time period where there was no information? That's what I want to know. When was the period, the age of no information? Because it sure seems like we've always managed to spread and discuss and think about and react to information one way or another. And of course, it has become more rapid, it has become more prolific. The rate at which information comes to us, the frequency of information has increased. And so we're reacting to more But yeah, the need to have some sort of definitive reaction. And the the problem with that, the problem with having some sort of... The problem with investing in your reaction to any information, especially as it unfolds, is that you then become defensive of that investment. And you don't want to change your attitude. You know, if you respond to something a certain way... And you communicate that to somebody, especially if you do it in some sort of public way, now that we do have these public avenues to express ourselves, now that we do have, uh, you know, podcasts, now that us non-essential losers have podcasts. I don't, you know, the truth is I'm more of a non-essential winner, which makes me a loser. But it's a more positive way of looking at it to think of myself as a non-essential winner. But now that we have all these ways to express ourselves, we also invest more. And then as things continue to evolve and unfold, it's difficult to uninvest ourselves. And that drains people. It's really draining. It's draining to continually invest yourselves. Because, I mean, you think about a financial investment. You think about a financial investment. And what is that? It'll it'll drain your your bank account because you're putting money into things. And it can be it, it can be productive. You can get more money as a result of your investments, but initially you gotta put a, a drain. You gotta put a drain on your uh your income because it's going into the investment with the hope that it goes somewhere. That it grows that it goes somewhere and grows somewhere. You know, but uh you know, I mean, the same is true for, you know, emotionally investing in something, intellectually investing in something, which I think few people do. I think few people do intellectually invest in things without emotion. I don't think that happens very often. And I think it's fine. I think it's fine that most people, even when they're intellectually investing in something, do so with emotion involved. I think that's okay because, you know, I'm not a fan of this, you know, Oh, you know, all I think about are the facts. You know, I I think that it's better to just accept that you're going to invest in everything emotionally than it is to lie to yourself and to say that there isn't some sort of emotional investment in whatever it is you're doing. I think it's always better to be honest with yourself rather than lying about it. (laughs) Water is wet. Something I'm going to say at a seminar, when I'm teaching 40-something-year-old women how to uh, exist in this world, you know, I'm going to tell them, it's always better to tell the truth about things than lie about them, and people are going to go, they're going to take notes. I'm going to see a lot of hands moving, I'm going to see pages turning, people taking a lot of notes in their little notebooks at the seminars I'm going to be teaching, but that's the crazy thing, is, is just that sometimes people do need to be reminded of that. Sometimes people do need to hear platitudes over and over again. Sometimes people do need to hear, don't lie. You know, and the way I always put, I always put it on here is, lying makes your world smaller, makes your universe smaller. And telling the truth expands it. And if you pay attention to what you're saying... Or what you're thinking, for that matter. Because, I mean, when people talk about telling the truth and lying, it tends to be focused on what's coming out of your mouth. It tends to be this thing that's outward, like lying to other people. Don't lie to other people because, you know, you're, you're doing them a disservice. And even though platitudes, you know, will tell you that lying hurts you too, you know, just thinking a lie. Just thinking a lie, isn't good for you either. That causes everything to shrink too. It causes your 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 dicky to shrink as well. You know, I should I should tell people that. I should especially tell forty something year old women that. I should tell them, you know, when you lie, it's not just the universe that gets smaller. So does your dicky. <laughs> You got to get physical. You got to get, you know, I'm too focused on the universe. I'm too focused on these things that we can't even comprehend. I mean, you walk from one room of your house to the other and you can't even remember what the other room looks like. And here I am always talking about the universe as if that means something to people. Got to talk about their dickies. By that, I mean Their pants. Dickies brand. Your the pair of Dickies that you're wearing is gonna shrink like like you left it in the dryer. That's what I mean. Whenever I say dicky, I mean your uh, <laughs> your pants, your Dickies. You left them in the dryer too long. Because you have such a short memory. You know, I was talking recently about how, you know, people's political memory seems to have been reset around late 2016. It's like their world restarted in late 2016. And they, they don't understand the momentum that led to that shift. You know, while 2016 was a pivotal moment, as my friend Miles was saying at that time, this is a false paradigm shift. And he was right. I remember I was having conversations with Miles then. And he was saying, everybody's saying that this is some kind of paradigm shift going on, you know, the 2016 period. And uh, I agreed with him, but I, you know, I, w- I also felt the changes that were going on. But, you know, he and I have talked about this more recently in the fa- in the past few months, And this is a paradigm shift. What we've been going through this year is a paradigm shift. 2016, no. It was, as he said, this is his phrase, a false paradigm shift. This right now is a paradigm shift. But that said, you know, it doesn't mean that 2016 wasn't impactful. And I don't I'm not just talking about the election. I'm talking there was a lot of other things going on that involved that. But everything was swirling around. There was a whole lot swirling around, the whole universe. So something was going on. It wasn't the paradigm shift that this is, but something was definitely happening. And I think for a lot of people, their social, cultural, and political reset button got hit in 2016, which I think is why some people thought it was a paradigm shift, because they could feel a change inside of themselves. They knew something was different inside of them. But it wasn't this true paradigm shift. and, And I don't need to really go on on why this is one, because I think we all know what's You know, if you look up paradigm shift, I think you realize that what's going on now is very much that, or something pretty darn close to it, something synonymous with a paradigm shift, doesn't really matter what you want to call it. But yeah, it seems like, you know, there was this reset button that got hit, and it's just something I'm very aware of where it seems like people's memories have gotten short, And I don't want to say that scares me, <laughs> but it just—it's it, something I'm very aware of. It's something I try to keep in mind, you know, because I—I think that it does, it has dangerous potential when people's memory is short. Because I do, I do see awareness as the highest form of knowledge it is the present moment it's why everyone from you know spiritual gurus to just you know new age self-help uh snake oil salesmen who you know do have good things to say sometimes they just might not be the right person to be saying it they might be non-essential loser not you know they might be one of those types um but there's a reason why everybody says focus on the present moment, because it's the height of awareness. But awareness also includes the past. And when, when I notice people's memory becoming short, and not because of some sort of cognitive decline, but when their social, cultural, political memory becomes short, it just becomes very troubling, and it's something that you have to keep in mind when you communicate with people. It limits your communication with people, for sure. Because you you recognize that they're not pulling from... They're basically not pulling from the same set of data that you are. And uh, even though they have access to it. and i guess that goes back to this idea of you know having so much information available to us cuz we can't just have it you know i i think about wikipedia a lot because of what it represents you know in the, as i always say now you know man created computers in his image and wikipedia is a sort of a a simulation of the way we think and how through meditation i learned that thoughts aren't entirely different from opening up way too many wikipedia tabs and uh you know i i do sound like whenever i bring this up i do sound like one of those uh you know like 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 some someone who's like the best way to understand patience is when you're waiting in line at Starbucks and you really need your coffee to get going in the morning, but it seems to be taking uh, twice as long. You know how people like to use those examples to kind of like teach some, you know, like like spiritual teachers will do that. Be I mean, like when you're waiting in line at Starbucks, that's a great time to learn how to be in the moment. Um, but the truth is, Wikipedia to me is a simulation of how our thought process works. And through meditation, I did understand the way that certain thoughts form from other thoughts and the way that your mind basically becomes overloaded with them. And many of those thoughts never get completely closed out and you revisit them partially. It's sort of like Wikipedia when you've opened a million tabs. And very rarely do you... Read through them all completely, close them. Even if you have a ton of them open, you know you usually jump around. It's like you you'll read part of one here and you'll read part of one there, and you know for me it's like when I when I get on that kind of phase. It's any site that's built that way. You know, there's some other sites that are made that way. TV tropes is another one, and you'll you'll end up with all of these ideas floating around in the form of tabs and it becomes overwhelming and whatever it is you're most currently interested in is the one that you'll be looking at right now but then something about another you'll, you'll be reminded to look at another one and and so on and at some point you just have to close them all because very rarely are you going to go through and read them all individually and actually finish them So it reaches a point where you just close the whole browser and you start over. And meditation is helpful because your brain does work similarly to that. And when you meditate, especially as you, you know, develop a discipline and you actually start to get some kind of results or, you know, non-results, because that's really, you know, what a lot of people are looking for when they meditate. It's like they're not actually looking for results they're looking for things to stop happening for once. And I, I wouldn't say that's my approach. But you do learn how to... I don't know, I, I guess I, I had this moment, you know, a while back where I was meditating and it felt like a thought was a rodent sneaking under a door. Like if you've seen a mouse squeeze under, a, you know, the the crack in the bottom of a door, like where the door meets the ground... You know, I had this moment where I, I could feel a thought that just squeeze through like that. And it, it gave me insight into how thoughts form and then, you know, just paying attention to your thoughts as they come. And many of your thoughts do feel hyperlinked together in the same way that a Wikipedia article will have a link to another article. Many of your thoughts come to you that way and you don't even realize it. You know, I I had an experience, I was thinking about an art class I had in junior high, and then I thought about this kid who was in that class, and he moved, and then I remembered that his mom went to the same gym as my best friend's mom, and then that led to a thought about my best friend's family, and then that led to a thought about something else, and you know, I was actually able to backtrack. I was actually able to reverse those thoughts and find exactly where the thoughts had connected, and it should seem obvious it should seem obvious that it works that way but you know the reason i bring up computer examples is because you know they were created to mimic the way that we think and they don't mimic it perfectly which i think is why people get so upset sometimes at at the way information and communication is handled through computers and through devices i think people get so frustrated with it and like to say that that's the thing that's destroying our society because they see that thing and they're like, this is very close to the organic thing that it's mimicking, but it's not perfect. And because it's not perfect, it frustrates me, so I want to criticize it because, again, I'm imperfect and that thing is imperfect, so it's a match made in heaven. I'm imperfect, that thing's imperfect. My imperfection is what makes me criticize other things, and if those other things are imperfect well hey i have i have material i have something to criticize and it's valid it's justified and i think that's what people do when they see these modern forms of communication they see that it's not a perfect representation of how they feel information should be documented or communicated And that makes them think that it's far more destructive than it actually is. Not to say it's not destructive, but the thing that is the most destructive is actually the organic thing that it is mimicking, which is your thoughts. So, you know, it's very easy to focus on the medium. And that's not to say you should blow your brains out. Oh, so my thoughts are the problem. Oh, you're telling me it's not social media that's turning people against each other? It's the way I think organically? People are like, oh, social media is destroying us when, like, you know, less than a decade ago we fought two world wars. We fought two world wars before social media. (laughs) People were having brutal wars with everybody all the time. Hundreds of years ago. Thousands of years ago. You look through history books and what do we remember more than anything? What do we document more than anything? Wars. And yet we're like, social media is the worst thing to ever happen. It's turning us against each other. Oh yeah, things were so great before social media, right? You know, the, World War II... <laughs> oh, World War II was so great. We didn't have social media then turning us against each other. World War I, 20 years earlier. you know Rome, oh, the Romans, they were so lucky. They lived in such peace all the time. Roman expansion was so peaceful because they didn't have social media. You know, you read through the Book of Kings. All those, all you know, all these people in the Bible—they just—they had it so great because they didn't have phones. Life was just great when you didn't have phones, right, guys? You know, it's just funny that we look at it that way. You know, while people, you know, social media does turn people against each other, it does create tension. It can be destructive. It's like, look at what was going on throughout all of history before we had these things. What does that tell you? It's the organic source of all of this. Not the medium, not the frequency of information. And we've been handling things pretty well. You know, I'm a little worried. I'll, I'll admit I'm a little worried about the way things are headed, partially because people's memory seems to be short. I worry about that a little bit. But we've been doing pretty well with all of this technology. And I don't know where it's going to go, but we've handled it pretty well, all things considered. And I have to remind myself of that, and I try to remind others of that. It's one of the reasons I, I do this show. It's one of the reasons why I don't phone shame even though I do criticize these things, because it's important not to be like, they're perfect. You know, you'll, you'll never find me on this show being like, what do you mean? Smartphones are perfect. You know, I'll never say that. I believe in valid criticism, but I'm also not someone who's going to phone shame. Although, let me just say something really quick. <laughs> While I'm talking about that, you know, I know in, in the very first every night's a school night, somebody else mentioned this to me, because I brought it up again later, I've used this example before, but it turns out, I guess I mentioned this in the very first Every Night's a School Night way back when, but just that while I'm not against this smartphone world that we live in, this pod world is is how I referred to it then, this pad and pod world, and I don't even feel like that's relevant anymore, the pod and pad people, you know, whatever, Uh, but, you know, living in this world where people are walking around with their phones, I don't mind that. But just aesthetically, it's not very beautiful. Like a painting of a bunch of people walking around looking at their phones. While I I don't mind that they're looking at their phones, to me that's not a beautiful image. It doesn't make for a good visual. And maybe someday people will think it is because they'll have other things. You know, maybe someday, if things get, you know, if, you know... If war destroys society and people live like cavemen again, maybe they'll find a painting of people with their phones and think, oh, wow, this is like awesome sci-fi art. Or if we advance far beyond this, people will look back and be like, oh, look at that. You know, it, 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 seeing somebody like walking down a metropolitan street looking at their phone to somebody 200 years from now might be like a painting of somebody reading a book to us today. You know, we're not in a position to really comment on it. But as someone who's here now, for someone who's in the moment, I don't love the visual of it. But that said, a far worse visual is what we're seeing with the mobs. And it's people holding their phones up when when some sort of conflict is going on. This new thing where an entire mob of people are holding their phones up recording video of it. That's a visual I really don't like. And it's also something that's that's where we need to phone shame. We need to phone shame when mobs of people are holding up their phones, recording other people who are doing the same thing back to them. It's just such an ugly visual. But moving past that, I mean, it's obvious if you if you just see that, you know that that's not right. You just know that's not right when you see mobs of people facing each other and they're recording each other and they're it's like trying to catch you doing something or I don't even know if people know what they're doing when they do that. It's just it's become an instinctive response and in some ways it's good because you can catch somebody doing something horrible and it's evidence against them and we need that. As much as I wish we lived in a world where, you know, again, it's an imperfect world. Sometimes you need to have evidence of somebody doing something horrible so that they can be held accountable. But this idea of, you know, just large groups of people holding up their phones in this battle with each other, it's like it's it's this weapon and it's just visually repulsive. I truly I consider that truly repulsive. When I see that, and I see it more and more. So that's the only time I'll really phone shame is when I see that. I don't care if the person walking down the street not paying attention, you know. While they should pay attention, I don't care that they're walking down the street reading Wikipedia or whatever it is they're doing. It's just it's not aesthetically beautiful to me. But I don't. It's not something that bothers me either. But it does bother me when I see these groups of people with their holding their phone up, videoing people. But yeah, you know, the, with information, those, those people are non-essential losers. Those people are are non-essential losers. That's there's no other way to put it. I won't even put a positive spin on those people and say they're non-essential winners even though I, I consider non-essential winners and non-essential losers the same. Uh, I'm only going to call those people non-essential losers. And uh, that, is a, that is a situation where I find myself reacting when I see that. I do end up reacting to that myself. But it's not really something you need to ever analyze. There's no way to analyze that. It's just, that's your gut. Your gut, you know, you see certain things, you see certain behavior, you, you see certain visuals, and your gut just tells you all you need. Your gut tells you how to respond. Whereas it's the stuff that you could and should roll around a little bit. Because sometimes when you let something roll around, you find that it rolls right back out. An idea comes to you, a piece of information comes to you, it goes inside your brain, it rolls around a little bit, and you find that it goes right back out. And you you say, don't need that. I don't even need to say anything about that. And meditation does help with that. That's why I will recommend meditation to people, because if you find that you're not able to control those thoughts, I I believe that meditation can help you, it can aid you, in controlling your thoughts, and not just controlling your thoughts, but allowing thoughts to enter you, allowing information to come into your brain. It it gives you some clarity if you do want to analyze it, if you do want to think about it, if you do want to know how you honestly feel. Again, it's that idea of honesty not being something that only applies when something leaves your mouth, but it's something that goes on inside of you, regardless of whether a thought ever gets communicated to another human being or not, practices like meditation can help you be honest with yourself, and you have to be honest with yourself in order to analyze information in good faith. Again, it doesn't matter if you verbalize it or not, but, you know, having some of these practices, having some of this discipline will also, you know... You'll recognize that you don't need certain things. Certain things will just come and go. It's easy come, easy go. I'll see things that are horrifying to me. You know, not necessarily horrifying in that they are like physically brutal, like people being hurt. Although that, you know, sometimes that. But I'll just see things. I'll I'll just I'll hop online. You know, somebody will say something to me. I'll be out and about and see somebody do or say something. And it's nice because I I have a stance in response to it because you can't help but but have one. But it just kind of comes and goes. As easy as it came into your periphery, it leaves on the other side. It comes in, it passes through, and it goes. And so you can condition your mind to do that. Not to say you won't be hung up on some things or other things, but you can condition your mind to just kind of let things come in, roll around a little bit and you know, sometimes you think, oh, "I'm going to let this roll around a little more." I'm going to This is going to be a fun little game where I let this piece of information just roll around and maybe I want to keep it there. Maybe I want to form an opinion. Maybe that little piece of information that's rolling around You know, it starts to gather up, uh, it's like a snowball, and it's like, hey, this is going to become an opinion, and it's actually an opinion I want to have, so I'm just going to let it stay here. Other times, it's just, it's gone. And you never worry or think about it again. And if it comes up again, well, hey, there's there's that thought again. And just as easily as it came the first time, it can go again. So that's helpful. Not that I see meditation as simply as a way to control your thoughts, although that's not, you know, I don't mean to be dismissive of that, like, oh, simply, oh, simply a way to control your thoughts. I was, oh, meditation is just a way to control your own thoughts. That's That doesn't matter. A way to con- mind control for yourself? Pfft, that's nothing. No, but, you know, it, while that is important, I mean I do think there is an act of devotion to it as well as there's that transcendental aspect where you do get in touch with other things that I don't I don't need to go into here today but or ever you know I mean those are the things that you know are beyond communication really but it's not just that sort of cuz there's that secular way of seeing meditation as oh I'm going to be able to control my thoughts and emotions better which is great but for me, it's not a secular discipline. You know, for me, it is, it's both devotional as well as, you know, there is this... Uh, I mean, it's become devotional because of the transcendental experiences or transcendent. I'm not sure if there's really even a distinction between those words. Oh, you keep saying transcendental, but don't you mean transcendent? these inner voices, man, (laughs) these inner voices, Uh, let that one roll around, but you know, anyway, it's just, it's, you know, it's become devotional because of some degree of transcendence, I would say, some degree of um, learning and experiencing and knowing that there is something to be devoted to, that's a big part of it. So for me, it's not just some secular way of like not reacting and responding to everything emotionally. Or it's, oh, meditation. You mean you mean just a way to close all of the Wikipedia tabs in your brain? You know, that'd be a very secular way of seeing it. And it, and you can use it that way, but for me, there is another component to it that's that that actually takes precedent. This other thing, being able to control your own mind, have. You know, a little more flexibility, being able to let things come and go. That's just a, a wonderful byproduct uh, of the process. And, uh, yeah, I feel like uh, there's something else here that I'm I'm trying to hit upon. It's 11.48 here. 11.48, 12 minutes to midnight. You know that Iron Maiden song, 12 minutes to midnight? That Iron Maiden song, 24 hours to midnight? (laughs) 24 hours to midnight. That Iron Maiden Ramones cover band that I'm starting, 24 hours till midnight. probably exists somebody's done that how could you know somebody has to have made an iron maiden ramones cover band which would be really funny actually that's funnier than the beatles metallica cover band uh, i like iron maiden ramones more but um yeah i feel like there was something else to do with information maybe I don't know, easy come, easy go. I got to take that approach sometimes to this show where there's something I got to say. There's just something I got to say, and I didn't say it. But I often have that feeling. You know, things often do feel incomplete. Life feels that way sometimes. You know, sometimes it feels like you just haven't done that one thing that you've been meaning to do. And for me, that's often something creative. Like, I just got kind of to wrap up this one project. But I I think there, there should be a basic goal in life, especially once you reach a certain point. You know, when you're a kid, when you're younger, it's hard to think this way. But for me, I've reached a point at my old age of 34, at my elderly age of 34, I have reached a point where I, I just have a basic goal of wanting to go to bed every night, And not feel like I'm going to regret anything or feel like there was some sort of door I left open that I should have closed. There was some sort of project I should have wrapped up. There was some sort of statement I should have made. And it's not a, it's not like a, you know, I want to go to bed tonight and not wake up. You know, it's not that thought at all. It's not trying to it's not it's not a will to die. But it's the thought that, oh, if if tonight's the night, for some reason, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be I'm not gonna be up in heaven being like, I didn't finish that uh that drawing. Oh man, I, I, I meant to say this in that podcast. Oh, I wanted to tell this person that. I wanted to tell this person that, that thing. You know, it's not a way to think. I mean, I think you want to go to bed at night feeling, you know, essential. <laughs> you want to go to bed at night feeling like an essential worker and not not a non-essential loser. No, we don't need to get into You shouldn't even have that kind of language in your head when you go to bed at night. Having that kind of language in your head is not the way to go to bed. It's not the way to get a good night of sleep. Uh, but more and more I do have that idea where it's like, you know, I feel like I could go to bed tonight and not feel like there was more for me to do, even though there is more for me to do. And as long as I'm alive, I will do more. Even if that includes doing nothing, because sometimes that is doing more. Sometimes doing nothing is doing more. And non-essential losers, just that's something they don't understand. Non-essential losers do not understand the idea that sometimes doing nothing is doing more. And that's why they don't get good sleep. And when they die, they scream. (laughs) Their soul screams when they die. Non-essential losers, they just scream when they're in the bardo. And they become hungry ghosts, maybe. 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 I don't want to condemn them to that. I'm not in a position to know what happens to them. But, um, you know, I I do feel that, you know, I think it is a sign of being a loser when you constantly feel that something is left unfinished, especially when you reach a certain point in life. And it could come at any point, but once you reach that point, I think that you are playing with the house's money. When you have this feeling that, oh, I can do more and I will, I will stay productive. Even if that means slowing down sometimes, even if that means just sitting, even if that just means clearing you know, clearing the slate. Because that's productive, too. You know, sometimes erasing things. Sometimes erasing the chalkboard is more productive than writing on the chalkboard. That's what I'm going to say to the 40-something-year-old women that I'm going to teach. And I'm going to make myself really... um, I'm going to make them know that when I'm teaching these 40-something-year-old women how to live life... I'm going to make sure they know that I'm off the market cuz you know I'm going to be uh I'm going to have my skull it my uh I'm going to be ripped and I'm going to constantly refer to my 25-year-old Buddhist Republican girlfriend just so they know just so they know You know you got to you know you got to keep you got to remind them of that and my Buddhist Republican girlfriend she'll love that She's going to love being used as an example in my education seminars for 40-something-year-old women. I guess I didn't really imagine that I was also going to be 40-something, too, during these seminars, but I guess I am. I guess I'm gonna, they're going to be peers of mine. These women who are just hungry for knowledge are going to be my peers. They're going to be in my age range. I guess I was imagining me doing it now. <laughs> maybe I need to start now. Maybe I need to start these seminars now. And I think maybe you got to start, you know, you got to start people out by teaching them how to not be a non-essential loser. you got to teach them first how to be an essential loser. Although that's something you can't teach. That's truly something you cannot teach. Except for Kurt Cobain. (laughs) Kurt Cobain was taught how to be an essential loser. He went to school to figure that out. Kurt Cobain learned from the best. He had a really good teacher who taught him how to be an essential loser rather than a non-essential loser. He was taught by the Melvins, I heard. I heard that Kurt Cobain was taught by uh, the Melvins, actually, what, what, here's what happened. A lot of people don't know this. I know it because I'm from the Pacific Northwest. You know, Aberdeen is a, an hour away from me. I live in Olympia where all these guys lived at one point. And only the insiders know this. Only people who have heard it from the town crier himself know this. But, uh, you know, Buzz Osborne from the Melvins, is who taught Kurt Cobain how to be an essential loser. And he taught him by teaching him how to play in an Iron Maiden Ramones cover band. That was the thought that I was missing. You know, I was missing a thought a second ago before I you know, I was wanting to wrap this up, and I was missing a thought. It was that important piece of information that you won't find on Wikipedia, which is going to be part of the slogan for my education seminars That are going to be marketed toward 40 something year old women, which is, you won't read this on Wikipedia. You won't find this on Wikipedia. Which does seem really attractive in today's world, doesn't it? You won't find this on Wikipedia. You won't find this on Wikipedia.